As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. This is the one whom I look upon with favor, declares the Lord. The one who is humble and tried in spirit and who trembles at my word. This morning's first scripture reading is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 1004. Again, the text is Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, found on page 1004. It reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Our second scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It can be found on page 1012 of the Pew Bibles. Again, the text is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, found on page 1012. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but in each of you, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly... Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, above the earth, excuse me, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Brian. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, as uh, we have prayed in song, we pray in word. Uh, Spirit of the living God, uh, would you please draw near? Would you change us from the inside out, conforming us to the likeness of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be free, that we might be filled with hope, with joy, with a counsel and a wisdom that are, that are not of this world but are from you, a counsel and wisdom that bring fruitfulness, that bring faithfulness, that bring life, that bring fellowship with you and with one another. Father, our world today is hurting. It is lost. It is alone. It is enslaved to screens, to images that are fleeting, longing for likes, likes that come as quickly as they go longing for substance, for meaning, for the life that is truly life, a life beyond what is passing. 
Father, thank you that you give us a hope, a hope of a new heavens and a new earth. Thank you that you give us a purpose here and now to love you and to love others, to lay down the little few resources we have knowing that you indeed find joy and delight in us and in what we do for you. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty, to see the uh, utility, to see the meaning and significance found in living lives of faithfulness this morning. Father, please reorient, redefine this faithfulness in a way that is pleasing to you and fulfilling, satisfying for us. We pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been walking through this summer through the fruit of the Spirit, and this morning we'll be talking about faithfulness, and Brian read for, uh, uh, read for us from uh, Philippians chapter 2. Before we run into that text and walk through, it's one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. I'm going to take you to the Old Testament real quickly. Turn to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. I'm going to contrast two types of faithfulness this morning, two types of faithfulness the faithfulness of Scripture and the faithfulness of the society in which we live today. Psalm 84, it's found on page 508 of your Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow along. This is truly one of my favorite psalms. It's one of the psalms, actually, that I think is, has such tremendous resonance with our culture today. Uh, it, it speaks to the things that we long for, the things that we, in, in a sense, in our heart of hearts, want most. It appeals to us with such beauty. Uh, I want you to just focus again. It's page 508, Psalm 84, and verse 10. This is a a famous verse, a verse that we actually sing ever so often in our church. You may recognize this. But verse 10 says, listen to this, it's better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist is making a statement of value, of what's better. And he says, better is one day as a servant in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. My wife Sarah and I are reading a book right now called iGen. I'll reference it here in a little bit. But one of the things that it talks about, iGen refers to the generation of our kids, of our teens, um, from those born in ni- 1995 up to like 2005 or something around, around there, 2012, maybe 2010, I can't remember. But, but it's a generation after Generation X, often called Generation Z or, or simply called iGen because they were raised in a, di- you know, the, the first uh, generation in human history to be raised in a digital environment and to have uh, cell phones at their disposal. Um, and one of the things that it discusses in Chapter 4 is something that you've all heard of, the acronym you've all heard of, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And it's one of the great sort of plagues of this generation is this sense of the reality that they somehow, someway are missing out. And it's more acute than ever because whereas before you go to school on Monday and you'd hear about the party on Friday night and you're like, well, I guess I missed it. Now with social media, you can find out as the party is happening that guess what? You weren't invited. And everyone's that, who, who, who's, who's there except you? Everyone else. And they, everyone, it's almost like deliberate, like it was a conspiracy to leave you out. And so this sense of FOMO, the sense of, and the depression 
that comes with it, what's wrong with me, is so keen. And here in Psalm 84 is a complete absence of FOMO. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He continues, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Here, listen to this, gang. Here is a psalmist celebrating servanthood to Yahweh. I want to be a servant. I want to be a slave. I want to be faithful in the house of my God because that is better, more enjoyable, more satisfying, more fulfilling than to be in the tents of the wicked. And of course, the contrast, what's the contrast between house and tents? Think about that. Metaphorically, what is, what's the difference? A house is what? What's that? Permanent. permanent. Right, permanent. Thank you, Terry. It's a permanent. Whereas tents are what? Just passing. There's something about wickedness. There's something about, there's something about a way of life that at first has an appeal to it, and yet ultimately is what? It's transitory. It's passing. Right? It's like those likes. You put that, you, put, you post on Instagram, you post on Snapchat, and you sit there and you wait. You post on Facebook waiting on who's going to notice. You check back later. It's like, man, no one's, no one's noticed. Or you text someone. You text someone, you text them, and you sit there and you think, okay, what, have they te- why haven't they texted back yet? Is it because they don't like me? Like, what, what's, what's going on here? What's, why no text back? Like, what? And you just, you're kind of left in this place, and it's very fleeting, it's very ephemeral, it's very just, it's here, and it's gone tomorrow. And this, this sense here where he's saying it's better to be, listen to this, better to be fully serving, fully faithful in the permanent house, the lasting house of the Lord, versus to dwell passingly, briefly, unpredictably in the house of the wicked. And here wicked means precisely, listen to this, wicked doesn't mean, oh, those nasty, terrible people, drug addicts and, you know, murderers. And that's not what the wicked refers here. Here wicked refers to those who are unpredictable. Those who bail those who make promises that, are, that they don't really keep. You're not really sure what's going to happen. It's the crowd of who knows what's going to happen next. Right? And this is, this, is, this, is our, I mean, this is our kids' generations, right? It's a sense of, hey, what are you doing? I don't know. If you try to arrange something, you try to plan something, you have no idea who's going to show up because people may bail at the last minute. You just have no idea. And so it's this very fleeting, very ephemeral, very fickle, very unfaithful group of people. And so the psalmist has absolutely no problem saying, you know what better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. And then he says, I would rather be a what? A doorkeeper. Now, how much status does a doorkeeper have? Big deal, right? No, a doorkeeper is a nobody. He says, I would rather be a nobody, a faithful, I'd rather be faithful as a nobody in the house of my God than to dwell 
in the tents of the wicked. And I'll explain why that is in a little bit. In fact, the word doorkeeper, it's not even a word, it's actually, a, in the Hebrew, it's a verb. I'd rather be doorkeeping in the house of the Lord. It's not even a position is the point. It's not even a title. Does that make sense? Like, well, so what's your role here, right? What's your title? Well, I don't really have a title, right? I mean, I'm not even, right? Because the word comes from threshold, a saf. And, you know, he's in, and it means, and saf means threshold of a door. And the verb safaf means the threshold, to, 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 to doorkeep, to hang around the door. You know, somehow, oh, can we get the door for you? As if somehow, you know, they couldn't get the door for themselves. So I would rather have this tiny, insignificant role in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now I'll move to the right real quick. Turn to chapter 25 of, of Matthew's Gospel. Turn to chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel. The famous parable of um, the bags of gold, the parable of the talents. Traditionally, they're called talents. It's another way of referring to a great sum of money. This is page 852 in your, in your pew Bible, 852, Matthew 25. And it's, you tell, I won't read the, the whole thing, it begins in verse 14, I won't read the whole thing, but it speaks of a man who, a very wealthy man who goes on a journey and he leaves his wealth, he entrusts his wealth to various servants. And to, to, to one he gives five bags of gold, to another two, and, and to another he gives one bag of gold. And, and, and so then when he returns, he comes back and he wants to see how, what they've done with the money that he's given them. In verse 19, uh, it says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts uh, with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the, other five, brought, brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. I see I have gained five more. Verse 21, his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Listen to this. Come and share in your master's happiness. Do you see that? Here's this faithfulness that leads to a flourishing. It leads to a, a fellowship, to a greater participation in the wealth, in the security of the master's household. It's a no-brainer. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? It's just often, this passage is often used in funeral services or memorial services, a way of saying, hey, this, our, our brother or sister in the Lord who's passed, they've been, a, they've been faithful, a good and faithful servant, and now they are hearing these words from their master, from our Lord Jesus Christ, as he says, come and enter into the joy of your master. So this vision in the, in the Old and New Testament of being a faithful servant is intended to be an enviable one. It's intended to be a, uh, a, a one that entices us and draws us in. But of course, in today's world, faithfulness, that kind of faithfulness, faithfulness to a cause, Faithfulness to someone greater than us, faithfulness to someone outside of us has received radical critique. There are no masters like that. Even the whole concept of a master-servant, master-slave relationship is just, I mean, it just sort of sends chills up our spine like, are you kidding me? That we would think in this sort of notion of 
of, of being under someone, being uh, constrained by someone, following someone else's agenda, someone else's orders. In fact, that's all because of the movement of the last, really it's a, a major movement, a movement that's gained steam, especially in the last 40 to 50 years, that, that you could call a number of different names. We're just going to call it individualism. Individualism's mantras are at least twofold. Individualism says first, no one cares. And it celebrates. No one cares. No one cares what I do anymore. I don't have to be told. No, there are no constraints. No one cares what I do. I can do whatever I want to. I can define myself however I want to. I can go where I want to go, be whoever I want to be. There are no constraints. So first, individualism says no one cares. It's wonderful. And the second, individualism says it's up to me. It's up to me. Me. I can do whatever I want, go wherever I want to. It's up to me. I decide. I make the shots. I make the calls. It's up to me. And it sounds so enticing at one level, doesn't it? Well, again, I mentioned earlier this book, the Serenario reading called iGen. It's by a woman named Jean. I don't know, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. It looks like Twinge. Jean Twinge, she's a PhD. She's a psychologist at the University of California, San Diego. In um, chapter four, she discusses the mental health of the, of the I generation, of Generation Z. And listen to this, the one word that begins, that is the title of chapter four, is insecure. Insecure. She writes, I generous look so happy online. They make goofy faces on Snapchat and smiling in their pictures on Instagram, but dig deeper and the reality is not so comforting. iGen is on the verge of the most severe mental health crisis for young people in decades. And she documents the loneliness, the depression, the anxiety, the uselessness. In fact, let me just read, from, read to you one uh, excerpt from an interview. There's this one young lady, a high school senior, named, her name is Azar. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Azar. But she, the, the author was interviewing her, and uh, she describes her as, quote, an astute observer of the patina of positivity on social media, right? On social media, everyone's happy, right? Everyone's always doing great, they're always amazing, they're so happy. And she comments, she observes about it, and she she says that it's a patina, you know, a patina is like a covering, like a, like a facade. Patina of positivity on social media covering the ugly underbelly of reality. Quote, and then she, she, uh, she speaks as a teenager here, so I'm going to do my best here. People post pretty Instagram posts like, my life is so great. Their lives are crap. They're teenagers, she says. Quote, they post, I'm so grateful for, I'm so grateful for my bestie, unquote. That's a bunch of BS. You are not so grateful for your bestie because in two weeks, she's going to like cheat with your boyfriend. And then all of you are going to have a big fight and y'all are going to claw each other's ears off. That is what a teenager's life is like. And, and then she comments, the author comments, Azar's assessment, funny and sad at the same time, captures the paradox of iGen. Listen to this. Here's the paradox. Catch this. An optimism and self-confidence online that covers a deep vulnerability, even depression in real life. 
Vulnerability. Now, wait a minute. What was, the, what was the word that she used to describe the whole chapter about the mental health crisis? Insecure. So the idea is very simple, the, but very counterintuitive to our culture today. The more autonomy, the more anxiety. Does that make sense? The more independent I am, the more insecure I am. Hey, no one cares. I can do whatever I want to. Oh, crap, no one cares. And no one cares. I am on my own. It's all up to me. I can do whatever I want. Oh, my goodness, it is all up to me. I've got to navigate this whole life and figure out what to do. No wonder there's this fear of missing out because there are no instructions, no directions. There's no traditions. There's nothing. There's no sort of plan or sort of path that I can choose from. It's entirely up to me. And this is what I want you to hear. Faithfulness in this context is redefined as what? Not being faithful to a larger story, to a, to a greater master. Faithfulness is all about being true to me. And it's not, I'm not judging. I'm not saying, oh, that's real wrong. It's so bad. I'm saying it leads to what? Vulnerability, anxiety, depression, feelings of uselessness. I mean, it's, chapter 4 is an amazing read. I mean, it's been interesting to this point. Chapter 4 is an amazing read. You just see these precipitous declines in, in overall child happiness, sense of belonging, sense of self-satisfaction. I mean, the, the sense of, of, of um, I am not who I should be is deeper than ever. Listen to this. Listen, the more kids, <laughs> the more humans are part of something bigger than themselves, the happier they are, the more they know who they are. Think of something as simple as being a member of a sports team. How often do you talk to somebody, talk to a kid, and you ask them, hey, what, so, so what do you do? And they say, oh, I, I play volleyball. I play baseball. I run track. Right? See, it's an activity that they're involved in that gives them what? An identity, a sense of who they are. And of course, then they graduate from high school or they finish, maybe they make it into college and they still they run track in college and then they finish their senior year in college and what? Suddenly, they're not, a tra- they're not in track anymore. And I can't tell you, after many, having ministered to adult, or some young adults for so long, when they get out of that, they're no longer a track star. They're no longer a baseball player. There's a sense of what? Identity crisis. Because there's no longer a part of something bigger than themselves. Or think of something like the military. How many young persons often will go into the military out of high school? And how much freedom, how much autonomy do you have in the military? Almost zero, right? There's the joke about the, the high school kid who tells his dad, I'm not going to do whatever you say. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going in the military. Right? There's so little autonomy, and yet what happens when they go in? I mean, I get it. Sometimes they don't like it, and it's, you know, whatever, and they get out. But often they find themselves. Isn't that amazing? They find a sense of purpose, a sense of, 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 of self-respect a sense of of appreciation for a greater mission of which they play a valuable part because they're in something bigger now and they're they're accountable to someone and they're accomplishing something. You see that? 
by ourselves, listen to this, on our own, how much control, how much wisdom do we have? Right? The more independent we are, the more we leave our kids to do whatever they want, to be all you do, you know, you figure it out. The more anxious, the more worried, the more depressed, the more undeveloped and immature they will be. Right? So often the young men, they go in the military and they grow up. It's like, who is this kid? They grow up because they're accountable, they're committed, they have responsibilities, they have to follow through. And so here's the thing, gang. In the ancient world, the world of the psalmist of 80, Psalm 84, the world of Jesus, the parable of the talents, they would look at our world today and our celebration of independence and autonomy and it would make complete sense to them that it leads to vulnerability and anxiety. In the ancient world, the goal, listen to this, the goal was never to become independent. That is, was, it wasn't even, even think like independent, autonomous. What is it? That's the dumbest thing you could do. That's just going to make you vulnerable. In the ancient world, it was far, they understood that I am not in control. I am not remotely in control. And so my pursuit is not a pursuit of autonomy, because that's vulnerability. My, my goal is the pursuit of finding and aligning myself with a master who has far more power than I do and who will actually provide for me and protect me. Does that make sense? And so the goal was all about figuring out how to negotiate relationships and engage in contexts and situations, and specifically households, large households, the larger the household, the better, that brought provision, that brought protection, that brought longing. It's actually a very common, look in Deuteronomy 15, this boggles our minds, but in slavery in, in, in the Old Testament law was largely a, an institution of welfare. It was an institution for, for those who were impoverished. For example, let's say that as a fam small family, suddenly my crop fails or my sheep, something happens to all, just, just to all my assets, and I am suddenly, I have got nothing left. You know, through some natural, natural disaster or whatever, maybe I have nothing left. I can go to another household, a larger household, and say, hey, my family are here. Can we just be your servants? Can we be your slaves? You don't have to pay us or what you would normally pay us. Just simply give us room and board. Keep us from, from dying, really. And they yeah, come on, you know, come in, you, I, I will care for you, I will do, you know, you will be my servants. And Deuteronomy 15 actually allows and says, listen, you, you can, masters, you can do that, you bring them in, you care for them, you get them back on their feet, and then after the sixth year, what do you have to do? Let them go. You have to let them go. And he says, when, and then and Moses commands, says, when you let them go, you send them away f like, f with just with all that you can. Send them away, you know, send them away, you know, what's the word, with sheep, with money, whatever it may be, you send them away uh, full of, with arms filled because they have been so valuable to you in these six years, right? I mean, they've, you've, I mean, it's just, you've, they've, they've worked for you and they've worked basically for nothing, for room and board. So they've benefited you and now you're to send them away. And then it allows, listen to this, it allows for this provision. It says, but if the servant in the seventh year doesn't want to go. What? What? If the servant doesn't want to go because he loves his master, 
There's a provision, a ceremony that you go through. And that, when we go through that ceremony, now the servant becomes what? A servant or a slave for life. Why? Because he loves his master. He finds provision and protection and belonging in that household. So again, the ancient perspective is not a pursuit of autonomy, but rather a pursuit of allegiance to the right master. Now, with that in mind, think about this. In Philippians 2, Jesus comes to earth. When he comes, what, what position does he assume? This is amazing. Turn there with me. It doesn't take long. Matthew, uh, Philippians 2, so amazing the position that Jesus takes when he comes to this earth. It's not a position of a king. It's not of the position of, you know, of a merchant. It's the position of a slave. Look in chapter, five, chapter 2, this is page 10, 10 12. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul exhorts, let's start in verse, um, verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but rather in humility, value others above yourselves. That's what a servant does. A servant says, you know what? Uh, You're more important than I am, and so I'm going to serve you. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Well, what mindset is this? Verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He was faithful as a servant. He was faithful. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess, and I'm sorry, in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is whom? Is Master, is Lord. He is the one who deserves our allegiance because he went all the way down to the glory of God the Father. It's such a beautiful, you know, this, you see this, this, this restless sort of, uh, this, this question of, of um, you know, the pursuit of autonomy versus the pursuit of allegiance in the Toy Story movies, some Pixar Toy Story movies. In fact, in the first three movies, you see uh, uh, Woody, who's kind of the, pretty much the main character is Woody, right? And then you've got Buzz Lightyear. But Woody is a cowboy, and Woody, uh, Woody in his cowboy clothing, he's, I've mentioned this before, I'm going to talk about baptism, infant baptism, right? That Woody has got boots on, and on the sole of his boot, what does it say? Kids, what does it say? It says Andy. And who's Andy? Andy is his owner. And he lives for Andy. He lives to serve Andy. Why is that? Because Andy is a good master. They love they, All those toys just simply love being belonging to Andy. And it's fascinating, and there's, there's actually four Toy, stories, you know, four, four Toy Story movies. And in the fourth one, 
this, this question of belonging is brought into full view. Right? We have, you have, what's his name? You have Andy who's committed to being loyal to a, to a master. And you've got Bo Peep, you know, little Bo Peep. And she, in a previous movie, she's gone off by herself, and she's now one of the lost toys. And the idea is it better to be, to have loyalty to a master or to have independence and to be one of the lost toys. And there's some really great exchanges that happen. It's not just black and white of which one you should be part of. But throughout the first three movies, overwhelmingly, this notion of belonging to a good master, of having that name, is central. And that is what we as Christians in faithfulness are to celebrate. Empowered, regenerated by the Holy Spirit to exhibit that fruit of faithfulness. It's to look on our foot (laughs) and say, oh, Andy, oh, wait, Jesus, I belong to him. He is my gracious master who emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race who came down before me as a servant and was faithful, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Who, who more is deserving to be at the right hand of the Father? Who more is deserving to say, you know what? Well, I don't care what you say, say jump, and I'll say how high. And the freedom that comes from simply being faithful. So let me just ask you, in your life right now, in your walk with the Lord, what are the areas of life where you're just like, you know what, I still want to be faithful. I'm not there. I'll obey here, here, and here, but this is too costly. This doesn't make sense. This is inhumane. This is unrealistic. Is it your time? Is it your money? Is it your devotion to other believers? Is it your marriage? Is it money? I don't know. But Jesus leads the way into the costliness of faithfulness, saying, listen, gang, it is worth it. It's worth it. So go today. Lean into, follow Jesus into a greater costly faithfulness. Follow him into this belief that whoever humbles himself in service, will be exalted. Jesus believed that God would be faithful to him, and therefore, he was faithful to his Father. Let's pray together.